MSW Media. News was Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, September 28th, 2020. Today, the New York Times has 20 plus years of Trump's tax returns. I'm your host, A.G. Yep, that's it. I had a perfectly fine welcome message. I wrote a perfectly wonderful show. We had a ton of headlines. The, the intro was going to be, hey, we have a big show planned today, including our Flip It Blue segment, which we still have with Democratic candidate for Georgia's 9th District, Devin Pandy. You don't want to miss that. Along with an interview with activist and stage four cancer survivor Laura Packard about the perils of the impact of a conservative court on the Affordable Care Act. Very important interview that will be in this show later on. And we'll wrap it up with the good news, of course. So that was my intro. We still have Devin Pandy. We still have Laura Packard. Those are such good interviews. I can't wait for you to hear them. But the lead block has changed. I had a perfectly good show, perfectly good headlines, all scripted. These were the headlines, right? Mike Caputo and Trump sped $300 million of taxpayer money to spread Russian disinformation about coronavirus in an ad blitz. A sitting U.S. Attorney General speaks out out against Bill Barr's uh, perversion of Maine justice. A scathing op-ed in the Denver Post from a former assistant director uh, of the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, Robert Cardillo, is out. Fox News won a court case by arguing that no reasonable viewer takes Tucker Carlson seriously. And Trump's objection to the Manhattan District Attorney's subpoena of eight years of Trump's taxes from Mazars doesn't do well in oral arguments. But the New York Times just blew all of that out of the water Sunday afternoon. As I sit here, this just came out. It's huge, and I'll tell you all about it right now. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. So I promise I'm going to get to those headlines. A lot of them are going to be pushed to tomorrow. I'm going to talk about a couple of them today. But first, quote, Donald J. Trump paid $750 in federal income taxes the year he won the presidency. In his first year in the White House, he paid another $750. He had paid no income taxes at all in 10 of the previous 15 years, largely because he reported losing much more money than he made. So that's the lead. And this is in reporting out from the New York Times Sunday afternoon by investigative reporters Russ Butner, Suzanne Craig, and Mike McIntyre. Now, Russ and Suzanne, incidentally, are are two of the three that dropped the huge story on Trump's finances in October of 2018, ahead of the midterm elections. Uh, And that was fueled by the financial documents provided by Mary Trump, who is now suing the president and his siblings, by the way, for defrauding her out of millions of dollars. But back to today's story from The New York Times, quote, The New York Times has obtained tax return data extending over more than two decades for Mr. Trump and the hundreds of companies that make up his business organization, including detailed information from his first two years in office. It does not include his personal returns for 2018 or 2019. This article offers an overview of the Times findings. Additional articles will be published in the coming weeks. So this 192 paragraph long story is an overview of the Times findings. Uh, This is the Sparks Notes, the abridged version, the Reader's Digest abridged story. Um, And I'm going to go over the key highlights with you. 192 paragraphs is the overview of what they found. 
And they're going to be releasing multiple stories in coming weeks for details uh, about what they've uncovered. An important caveat here, by their very nature, the filings will leave many questions unanswered, these tax returns that they got, and many questions will be unfulfilled. They comprise information that Mr. Trump has disclosed to the IRS, not the findings of an independent financial examination. They report that Trump owns hundreds of millions of dollars in valuable assets, but they do not reveal his true wealth, nor do they reveal any previously unreported connection to Russia. This kind of makes sense. Why Cy Vance needs the Mazar's documents, right? These data simply report revenue, not profit. In 2018, for example, Trump announced his disclosure uh, in his disclosure that he had made at least $434.9 million. The tax records deliver a very different portrait of his bottom line, $47.4 million in losses. Hmm. So he announced in his disclosure he made $435 million. In here it says he lost $47.4 million. That's what he filed his taxes as. All of the information the Times obtained was provided by sources with legal access to it. So we can try to guess who leaked this to the New York Times prior to the election. Maybe somebody on the Mazars case who knew that the Mazars case wouldn't be uh, sort of, we wouldn't see any fruits of that until after the election. I don't know. I'd I'd be guessing. Uh, These tax data examined by the Times uh, provide a roadmap of revelations from write-offs for the cost of criminal defense lawyers and a mansion used by the family retreat to a full accounting of the millions of dollars that the president received from the 2013 Miss Universe pageant in Moscow. So that's kind of a Russian dealing. The Apprentice made Trump a total of $427.4 million, which he then invested in a collection of businesses that were failing, mostly golf courses. They steadily devour cash, much as the money he secretly received from his father um, and how that financed a spree of quixotic overspending that led to his collapse in the 90s. Um, The picture that perhaps emerges most starkly from the mountain of figures and tax schedules prepared by Mr. Trump's accountants, accountants, Mazar's clue probably got this from the Manhattan DA. Somebody there. Uh, this is uh, the the picture that emerges starkly is of a businessman president in a tightening financial vice. Most of Trump's core enterprises, from his constellation of golf courses to his conservative magnet hotel in Washington, I guess it draws conservatives. Uh, they all report losing millions, if not tens of millions, of dollars year after year. His revenue from The Apprentice and from licensing deals is drying up. And several years ago, he sold nearly all the stocks that now might have helped him plug holes in his struggling properties. And a tax audit looms. And within the next four years, more than $300 million in loans and obligations for which he is personally responsible, personally, will come due over the next four years. And these records show the actual and potential conflicts of interest created by Trump's refusal to divest himself of his business interest while in the White House. His properties have become havens for collecting money directly from lobbyists, foreign officials, and others seeking FaceTime, access, or favors. The records for the first time put precise dollar figures on these transactions. Here are some examples. At the Mar-a-Lago Club, a flood of new members starting in 2015 allowed him to pocket an additional $5 million a year from the business, with people paying for access. At his Doral Golf Course in Miami, uh, the roofing materials manufacturer GAF spent at least $1.5 million in 2018, 
uh, even as, as its industry was lobbying the Trump administration to roll back egregious federal regulations. Huh. Conflict. In 2017, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association paid almost about $400,000 to the Washington Hotel, where the group held at least one event during its four-day World Summit in defense of persecuted Christians. Then, uh, when he took office, Mr. Trump said he would pursue no new foreign deals as president. <laughs> Even so, in his first two years in the White House, his revenue from abroad totaled $73 million. And while much of that money... Uh, was from his golf properties in Scotland and Ireland. Some came from licensing deals in countries with authoritarian-leaning leaders or thorny geopolitics. For example, $3 million from Duterte from the Philippines, $2.3 million from India, and $1 million from Turkey. Now, the data also contains no new revelations about the $130,000 payment to Stephanie Clifford, Stormy Daniels, which is one of the focuses of the Manhattan DA's subpoena for Trump's tax returns. Another financial information, another clue that that might be where they got this. However, they say that it has no new revelations, but there is kind of a revelation because Trump has acknowledged reimbursing Cohen, who made the payoff. But the materials obtained by the Times did not include any itemized payments to Cohen. The amount, however, could have been improperly included in legal fees written off as a business expense, which are not required to be itemized by tax returns. That says to me that Trump didn't make the payoff, or he would have had to have itemized it. Which says to me, it was improperly recorded as a business transaction for legal fees, which is another thing the Manhattan DA is looking at. Business fraud. Falsifying business documents. Now, no subject has provoked more intense speculation about Trump's finances than his connections to Russia. And while the tax records revealed no previously unknown financial connection and for the most part lack the specificity required to do so, they did shed light on the money behind the 2013 Miss Universe pageant in Moscow. That's a subject of enduring intrigue because of subsequent investigations into Russia's interference in 2016. So basically what the Times is saying here is that there's nothing itemized here about Russia, but there wouldn't be because it's not required to be in tax returns. But boy, did we see something interesting about the Miss Universe pageant in 2013. The records show that the pageant was the most profitable Miss Universe during Trump's time as co-owner and that it generated a personal payday of $2.3 million made possible by the Aguilarov family, at least in part, who would later help set up the infamous 2016 Trump Tower meeting for officials seeking dirt on Clinton with Veselnitskaya who is now, we know, connected directly to the Kremlin. The records show that in 2013, the pageant reported $31.6 million in gross receipts. That's the highest since at least the 90s, allowing Trump and his co-owner, NBC, to split the profits of $4.7 million. By comparison, Trump and NBC lost $2 million on the deal the year before Moscow and made $3.8 million from the one the year after. So it appears the Russia won made money, and it made a lot of money, a lot more money than it ever has before. So did hmm, Russia overpay Trump for this event? Wonder why in 2013. You know, pair that up with what's in Chris Steele's dossier, and you have a plan. It's what the FBI calls a clue, as Asha Rangapa says. In 2015, while campaigning on the idea he was a rich, self-made man, he was finishing up his 2014 tax return, and after tabulating all the profits and losses from his various endeavors on a Form 1040, the accountants came to Line 56, where they had to enter the total income tax the candidate was required to pay. They needed space for only a single digit. 
zero. For Trump, that bottom line must have looked familiar. It was the fourth year in a row he had not paid a penny of federal income tax. Mr. Trump's avoidance of income taxes is one of the most striking discoveries in his tax returns, especially given the vast wash of income itemized elsewhere in the filings. Huh. You mean he's inflating his assets and income for certain things, and then on his taxes he's putting zero? Oh. Ooh. We're so shocked. Mr. Trump's net income from his fame, his 50% share of The Apprentice, together with the riches showered upon him by the scores of suitors paying to use his name, totaled $427 million through 2018. A further $176.5 million in profit came to him through his investment in two highly successful office buildings. So how did he escape all taxes on this fortune? Even the effective tax rate paid by the wealthiest 1% of Americans would have cost him to pay more than $100 million in taxes. He paid zero. But the answer rests in a third category of Mr. Trump's endeavors, businesses that he owns that suck, that he runs himself. The collective and persistent losses he's reported from them largely absolve him from paying federal taxes on the $600 million from the apprentice branding deals and investments. That equation is a key element of the alchemy of Trump's finances, using the proceeds of his celebrity to purchase and prop up risky businesses, then wielding their losses to avoid taxes. Uses his fame to make money, throws that money into shitty businesses that he runs. Oh, no taxes. A lot of expenditures, though. Throughout his career, Trump's business losses have often accumulated in sums larger than could be used to reduce taxes on other income in a single year. But the tax code has a workaround. With some restrictions, business owners can carry forward leftover losses to reduce taxes in future years. Carry forward your loss, right? We knew this from the 2018 reporting. Overall, since 2000, Trump has reported losses of $315.6 million at the golf courses. Um, For all its Trump world allure, the Washington Hotel... Uh, has not fared much better. His tax records show losses through 2018 of $55.5 million. And the Trump Corporation, a real estate services company, has reported losing $134 million since, since the year 2000. Mr. Trump personally bankrolled the losses year after year, making his cash infusions as a loan with an ever-increasing balance. In 2016, he gave up on getting paid back and turned the loan into a cash contribution. You know, Trump tries to tell everyone his losses are a tax trick more than the fact that he suffers losses because he sucks at business. But now we know it's not a tax trick. He sucks at business. Confidential records show that starting in 2010, he claimed and received an income tax refund of $72.9 million, all the federal income tax he had paid for 2005 through 2008 plus interest. He got a refund, $73 million. The legitimacy of that refund is at the center of an audit battle he has long been waging out of public view with the IRS. This is the infamous audit. Trump has harvested that refund bonanza by declaring huge business losses, a total of $1.4 billion, with a B, from his core businesses for 2008 and 2009. Tax laws had prevented him from using that loss in prior years. But to turn that long arc of failure into a giant refund check, he relied on some accounting footwork, deft accounting footwork, and an unwitting gift from an unlikely source, President Obama. Business losses work like a tax avoidance coupon. Dollars lost on one business reduces dollar of taxable income from elsewhere. The types and amounts of income that can be used in a given year vary depending on the owner's tax status. But some losses can be saved for later use or even used to request a refund on taxes paid in a prior year. So you take those losses, move them forward. And until 2009, those coupons could be 
used to wipe away taxes going back only two years. But that November, the window was more than doubled by a little notice provision Obama signed as part of the Great Recession recovery effort. Now business owners could request full refunds or taxes paid in, prior, in the prior four years, and 50% of those from the year before that. Mr. Trump had paid no income taxes in 2008, but the change meant that when he filed his taxes in 2009, he could seek a refund of not just the $13.3 million he paid in 2007, but the combined $56.9 million paid in 2005 and 2006, when The Apprentice created what was likely the biggest income tax bite of his life. This is that pattern of Trump getting lucky and falling into millions of dollars. The records reviewed by the time indicate that Trump filed for the first several tranches of his refund several weeks later in January of 2010. That set off what tax professionals refer to as, as a quickie refund, a check process in 90 days on a tentative basis pending audit. His total federal income tax refund would eventually grow to $70.1 million plus $2.73 million in interest. He also received $21.2 million in state and local refunds, which often piggyback on federal filings. But whether he gets to keep that cash remains far from a sure thing. This is his $73 million sort of Damocles, right? If the auditors ultimately disallow Mr. Trump's $73 million federal refund, he'll have to return the money with interest and penalties. That could exceed $100 million. He could also be ordered to return state and local refunds, $21 million, based on the same claim. Then there's the consulting fees. This is a new thing in, in, this, in these documents. Between 2010 and 2018, Mr. Trump wrote off $26 million in unexplained consulting fees as a business expense across nearly all of his projects. In most cases, the fees were roughly one-fifth of his income. In Azerbaijan, Trump collected $5 million on a hotel deal and reported $1.1 million in consulting fees. While in Dubai, it was $3 million with a $630,000 fee and so on. Mysterious big payments and business deals raise red flags, obviously, particularly in places where bribes or kickbacks to middlemen are routine, like the Azerbaijan Tower. That and Trump reduced reduce his taxable income by treating family members as consultants and then deducting the fee as a cost of doing business. The consultants are not identified in these tax records, but evidence of this arrangements, arrangement was gleaned by comparing the confidential tax records to the financial disclosures Ivanka Trump filed when she joined the White House staff in 2017. Ms. Trump reported receiving payments from a consulting company she co-owned totaling $747,000. That exactly matched the consulting fees claimed as a tax deduction by the Trump Organization for hotel projects in Vancouver and Hawaii. Exactly $747,622. They matched. Ms. Trump has been an executive officer of Trump companies that received profits from and paid the consulting fees for both projects, meaning she appeared to have been treated as a consultant on the same hotel deals that she helped manage as part of her job at her father's business. And on the failed hotel deal in Azerbaijan, which was plagued by suspicions of corruption, the Trump Organization uh, lawyer told the New Yorker that the company was blameless because it was merely a licensor. It had no substantive role. We did not pay any money to anyone. Yet the tax records for three Trump LLCs involved in that project show deductions for consulting fees totaling $1.1 million that were paid to someone. In Turkey, a person directly involved in developing two Trump Towers in Istanbul expressed bafflement when asked about consultants on the project, telling the Times there's never any consultant or third party in, the tur in Turkey paid by the Trump org. But tax records show regular deductions of consulting fees over seven years, totaling $2 million. Ms. Trump disclosed in her public filing that the fees she received were paid through TTT Consulting LLC, which she said providing consultant licensing and management services for real estate projects. 
incorporated in Delaware. In December 2005, this firm is one of several Trump-related entities with some variation of TTT or TTTT in the name that appear to refer to members of the Trump family. Trump, Trump, Trump. Three Trumps, four Trumps. Like her brothers, Donald and Eric, uh, uh, Ivanka was a longtime employee of the Trump Organization and executive officer for more than 200 Trump companies that licensed or managed hotel and resort properties. The tax records show that the three siblings had each drawn a salary, roughly $480,000 a year, jumping to about $2 million after Trump became president. Though Ms. Trump no longer receives a salary. Uh, what's more, Mr. Trump said the children were intimately involved in negotiating and managing projects when asked in a 2011 lawsuit deposition whom he relied on to handle more important details of his licensing deals. He named only Ivanka, Donald, and Eric. So how does Trump pay only $750 in taxes, lose all of his money, be in debt hundreds of millions, and still be rich? If the singular Trump product is Trump in an exaggerated form, the man, the lifestyle, then everything that feeds the image, including the cost of business, can be written off. Mr. Trump may be reporting his business losses to the government, but he can still live a life of wealth and write it off. Take, for example, Mar-a-Lago, now the president's permanent residence, as well as the private club and stage set on which Trump luxury plays out. As a business, it is a source of millions of dollars in expenses deducted from taxable income, among them $109,000 for linens and silver, $200,000 for landscaping in 2017 alone, also deducted as business expense was the 210000 paid to a photographer over the years for shooting numerous events at the club, including a 2016 New Year's Eve party hosted by Trump. Perhaps Donald's most generous interpretation of the business expense write-offs is his treatment of the Seven Springs estate in Westchester County, New York. Seven Springs sits on 200 acres, lush, untouched land, an hour's drive north of New York City. 50,000-square-foot mansion has three pools, carriage houses. It's surrounded by nature preserves. Trump took advantage of what's known as a conservation easement. In 2015, he signed a deal with a land conservancy agreeing not to develop most of the property. In exchange, he got $21.1 million in tax deductions. And in 2014, Trump classified the estate as an investment property, as distinct from personal residence. Since then, he's written off $2.2 million in property taxes, even as his 2017 tax law allows individuals to write off only $10,000 in property taxes a year. To treat residences as businesses for tax purposes, you have to show that they have an actual honest objective of making a profit. Whether or not Seven Springs fits that criteria, the Trumps have described the property as a, a retreat. And Eric Trump said in 2014, it's our compound. Growing up, he and his brother Donald spent many summers there, riding all-terrain vehicles and fishing in a nearby lake. And at one point, the brothers took up residence in a carriage house on the property. It was home for us for a long time. And the Trump Organization website describes it as a retreat for the Trump family. That is Straight-up tax fraud. And the Seven Springs conservation easement deduction is one of four that Trump has claimed over the years. Two of those, Seven Springs and the Trump National Golf Club in L.A., are focus of an investigation by the New York Attorney General, who is examining whether the appraisals of the land and therefore the tax deductions were inflated. Another common deductible expense for all businesses is legal fees. The IRS requires that these fees be directly related to operating your business. And businesses cannot deduct legal fees paid to defend charges that arise from participation in a political campaign. It specifically fucking says that. Yet the tax records show Trump Corp wrote off as a business expense fee paid to a criminal defense lawyer, Fuderfoss, who was hired to represent Trump during the Russia stuff. Investigators were examining Don Jr.'s role in the Trump Tower meeting with the Russians who had promised damaging information on Clinton when he testified before Congress and Mr. Fuderfoss was there. That's a campaign thing. 
You can't write that off. Fooderfoss was also hired to defend the president's embattled charitable foundation, which was shut down after New York regulators said he was engaging in a shocking pattern of illegality. They aren't allowed to operate a charity in New York. The Trump Corporation paid Fooderfoss about $2 million in 2017 and 2018. Also written off was about $260,000 paid to Williams & Jensen, another firm brought in during the same period to represent Trump Jr., then we have the foreign entanglements. Mr. Trump's earnings from Istanbul Towers could have been as low as $3.2 million. In the Philippines, where he licensed his name to a Manila Tower nearly a decade ago, the low-end range was $4.1 million, less than half of the $9.3 million he actually made. Well, Underreporting for tax purposes. And in Azerbaijan, he collected more than $5 million for the failed hotel project, about twice what appeared on his public filing. It did not take long for conflicts to emerge when Trump ran for president. The Philippines leader, Duterte, uh, chose as a special trade envoy to Washington a businessman behind the Trump Tower in Manila. In Argentina, a key person who had been involved in Uruguayan licensing deal that got Trump $2.3 million was appointed to a cabinet post. These conflicts have been most evident with Turkey, where the business community and authoritarian government of Erdogan have not hesitated to leverage various Trump enterprises to their advantage. When Turkish-American relations were at a low point, a Turkish business group canceled a conference at Trump's Washington hotel. And six months later, when the two countries were on talking terms again, they rescheduled the event. Turkish Airlines also chose the Trump National Golf Club in suburban Virginia to host an event. Other than that, Trump is personally responsible for loans and other debts totaling $421 million, most of it coming due in the next four years. Should he win re-election, his lenders would be placed in the unprecedented position of weighing whether to foreclose on a sitting president. But there is a tax benefit. While business owners can use losses to avoid taxes, they can do so only up to the amount invested in the business. By taking personal responsibility for that debt, Trump would be able to declare that amount in losses for future years and pay, continue to pay no taxes. His unresolved audit of $73 million still hangs over his head. But what we're seeing now pop up all over social media platforms today, this hour, are extremely pissed off Americans who have all likely paid more in taxes this year than Trump has in the last 15. And this is just the beginning. The Times will be releasing more detailed reporting about what they've found in the coming weeks. What I just gave you is a shortened version of their shortened version. And we'll bring you all of it as it happens. In other news that I really can't go over in detail, I'll go over in more detail, t detail tomorrow. Uh, Second Circuit heard arguments in the Mazars case, Manhattan DA, on Friday. From what I heard, Trump's going to lose. And he will either appeal en banc to the full panel of the Second Circuit or to the Supreme Court or both. They'll likely grant him a stay. I'm only saying I think that that's likely because they've granted him all the other stays he's asked for. But I'm certain he will ultimately lose the cases, even though he's trying to get his uh, Supreme Court justice shoved in there super fast. The Manhattan DA likely won't get the Mazar's documents till after the election, though I suspect, I suspect, and this is just beans, that he's got sealed indictments already ready to go, that he filed prior to the tolling of the statute of limitations on felony fraud, which expired earlier this year. Those are just beans, though. I have no evidence. Also from Politico, the health department is moving quickly on a highly unusual advertising campaign quote, quote, called Defeat Despair about coronavirus. It's a $300 million-plus effort that was shaped by a political appointee close to Donald Trump and executed in part by close allies of, the, of, of this official, using taxpayer money. $300, $300 million of your money. This is a Russian talking point, by the way. Senior administration officials have recorded interviews with celebrities like Dennis Quaid and C.C. Winans, I don't know who that is, um, and the Health and Human Services Department also has persuaded or pursued television host Dr. Oz and musician Garth Brooks. 
So that's happening. And we'll have more details on that. Plus the op-ed from the AUSA and the former associate director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, all that stuff I'll talk about more in detail tomorrow. I had to get this tax news out there, and um, it's big. And we'll be right back with an incredible interview with an incredible candidate. Democratic candidate running to flip Georgia's 9th district, Devin Pandy. He's amazing. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. I realized long ago our health is the most precious thing that we have, and nowadays we're all focused on our well-being. But if you're like me, you'd prefer to avoid going a doc- prefer to avoid going to a doctor's office right now. It's a pandemic. But thankfully, there's a practical and affordable way to take control of your health and get personalized care from the comfort of your own home. It's called SteadyMD, S-T-E-A-D-Y-M-D. It's your personal doctor online. You start by taking a quick quiz, and you get matched with a licensed primary care physician who understands your lifestyle and your health needs. Next, you have a one-hour appointment to start a relationship. And after that, your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone, or video chat. Unlike other services, this isn't a random doctor on call. Each SteadyMD doctor carries a panel and has a limited number of patients, so they have time to listen to you and give you personal attention. I took the quiz. Uh, They match me according to my individual health needs and lifestyle. SteadyMD can help you get and stay healthy, manage chronic conditions and concerns, reduce stress, lose weight, sleep better, feel better, boost your immunity, and much more, while still in the serenity of your home, so you can skip the waiting room and the germs. Prescriptions are sent directly to your home or local pharmacy, and you get unlimited access to your doctor for only $99 a month. No additional visit fees or co-pays. SteadyMD will even help you understand to get the most out of your health insurance, but insurance is not required. SteadyMD is now accepting members of all ages in all 50 states. So go to SteadyMD.com slash Daily Beans to take the free quiz and see which doctor is a perfect fit for you. SteadyMD.com slash Daily Beans. There's no risk, no long-term commitment to get started. Again, that's SteadyMD.com slash Daily Beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time to flip it blue. And joining me today for the Flip It Blue segment, and I'm so excited about this, is Devin Pandy. He's running as the Democratic candidate in Georgia's 9th District against Andrew Clyde. This seat was held by Doug Collins, who held it since 2012, you know, our best friend in the in the House committees. Mm-hmm. And uh, Devin here, you are, it says you are, you served in the Army from 1993 to 2014, and you have a history of service in your family. So thank you for your service, and welcome to the show. You're very welcome. It was my honor to serve, and, uh, and it's an honor as well to be on your show. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I do appreciate that. And I want to kick this off by talking a little bit about Georgia's 9th District. Um, this is uh, a red district um, for now. And I, I'm interested, it's, it's rural, and I'm interested in, in learning a little bit more about the characteristics of uh, the Georgians who live in your district and some of the characteristics of the district itself. Can you talk a little bit about the 9th? Um, yes, the 9th is a beautiful, beautiful place. It's a beautiful part, um, beautiful section of this country. Um, we are, I live at the um, foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, and uh, the Appalachians run through, uh, through the 9th. We've got uh, so many natural uh, natural wonders, if you will, um, lakes and uh, and rivers and wildlife. It's just a beautiful place. We have uh, gorgeous summers, um, uh, snowy winters, uh, white Christmases. It's it's great. Uh, I love it here. Um, 
the uh, I'm actually, you know, in the in the market for a ranch right now. Uh, well, anybody uh, in George's Knife know any ranches for sale? Let us know. We'll put you in touch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. With absolutely. It sounds like beautiful country. Yes, it is. It is gorgeous. And uh, and I think it's important that we protect it. So why don't we jump in with your uh, plans yeah. and your pa- and your platform uh, regarding the environment? Because as you know, the Republicans pulled us out of the, par- the Paris Climate Agreement, but um, the Democrats, uh, Joe Biden, has put uh, AOC and Kerry in charge of uh, the the climate crisis if if uh, he's elected. And I want to know if you're elected. Uh, what you will do, how you will represent the Georgians in your district uh, as far as just the absolute beauty and natural resources uh, of the night? Yeah, well, my, my my first responsibility will be to the night to ensure that we do protect those natural resources. And that means partnering with both Democrats and Republicans in Congress to ensure that we enact uh, the proper measures to to protect those natural resources. Um, and uh, if that means passing a Green New Deal, which not only would protect those things, but would also create um, jobs, um, pay, uh, help people to have health insurance, um, all of those things, I'm all for it. And, and to be honest, you know, if uh, I know that my GOP counterparts, uh, they don't care for the Green New Deal, but uh, but they, they have to admit that climate change is real. Look at the uh, the fires in um, in California and the rising tidewaters um, and, and everything else. So if 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 they don't like the Green New Deal, fine. Give me something better. Give me something that that attacks this specific problem and and make it just as comprehensive as the Green New Deal, and I'll support it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and they're absolutely in denial about it, which is weird, especially. If they say they support our service members and the Pentagon and veterans and the NDAA, because you know as well as I do, because we've both worked for the Department of Defense and the Pentagon uh, for a long time, that they have been early adapters of understanding the climate crisis and and making changes and and trying to mitigate uh, the issues that come with it. So it's it's been recognized by our military for a very long time, but the Republicans refuse to acknowledge it. So I'm glad that you are. And this also, the environment, ties directly in with the economy. The Green New Deal has just thousands and thousands of jobs, uh, you know, hundreds in your district, thousands in your district, millions across the country. And and to, to turn a blind eye to it and to not be the leader of the world in green energy. Uh, It's just, it it blows my mind because there are so many jobs, low hanging fruit jobs that we can create for people. Yeah. um, I, I just, it, it, it really escapes me how something that can be so good for this district, something that can be so good for this state, something that can be so good for the country is not bipartisan simply because of the party who, who came up with it. Um, you know, I, I would, I would, I can't speak for, you know, Senator, um, uh, Markey or, or AOC, but, um, but if, if I created it and the only way to get Republicans to back it is to hand it off to them and say that they created it, I would do it because it is that important. I, I don't need the praise. All I need is for them to, to get behind something that can literally save the world. I mean, I know that sounds so cliche, but it's true. And um, 
and I'm I'm thinking about my children of the future and what kind of world they are going to be living in, and and our 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 duties as parents should be to hand our children a world and opportunities better than what we had. And right now we are, we are not doing so. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and also I want to touch on something that's a little closer to home to the, the Georgians in your district here. These are the tariffs imposed on foreign goods and, and small farmers have still haven't received their tariff rebates. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that impacts your constituents? Yeah, they still have not received any of that $28 billion um, tariff bailout. Um, now, uh, they tout that, you know, they've given all of this money to to farmers, but really what they've done is they've given all that money to farming, to large agricultural farming, not small family farms. Um, and a lot of those agri- large agricultural um, farming institutions are owned by, by, uh, by foreigners not owned by United States citizens. And, um, and so it's, it's very important that we, that we know exactly uh, where those monies uh, went to, who those monies went to, and why they did not go to our smaller farmers. Um, our family farms are, are frustrated right now. Um, they are paying more to sow than what they're getting after they reap. And no one can sustain that way. No one. No, it's 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 basic math, and um, the Republicans are leaving them behind, and it's 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 horrifying and sad, especially right now in this economy and during this uh, pandemic. And uh, you know, being a farmer, wh- whether you're that or whether you 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 know are are trained vocationally to get a Green New Deal job or or something like that, we I want to pivot to healthcare because right now we tie. Uh, a lot of health care to employment. And with the, mm-hmm. you know, the Republicans have tanked this economy with 40 million people out of work. You lose your job, you lose your health care, and people cannot afford it. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your health care plan. Yes. So um, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, health care should not be tied to employment. I mean, for, for just this reason alone, no one should lose their health care because their employer goes out of business. That makes absolutely no sense. Uh, and another thing, especially when it comes to here in in rural Georgia, you know, we, we must pass the Save Rural Hospitals Act. Um, we have in the last 10 years, we've had eight um, hospitals close and we have another one closing um, here in the ninth uh, in the next short while. Uh, and so not having um, adequate health insurance and having your your hospital close is going to create such a a gap in the quality life saving affordable health care that people can receive mm-hmm. and um, and then not not only the health care itself but then we also have to look at um, at at the medications at the cost of medications. Um, the cost of prescription medications is ridiculous. I mean, we're we're talking, you know, five, six, seven thousand uh, percent markups, which is ridiculous. So I, I definitely uh, support a a cap of one hundred and ten percent 
um, of the international uh, market average. Uh, I think that's only fair. It's fair to the manufacturers and it's fair to our citizens uh, who need these medications to live. Yeah, these big pharma CEOs don't need hundreds of millions of dollars in salary to get by. Uh, You know, I I mean, I guess if you've got a bunch of yachts and planes and mortgages and shit, maybe that is paycheck to paycheck for them. But uh, I doubt it. I really doubt it. Um, it, But yeah, I I 100 percent am with you on all of that. And it's it's so important, especially in 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 these rural areas. Uh, districts and precincts that there's so much voter suppression happening and your governor piece of work uh, has this use it or lose it uh, voter registration mentality when when you know everyone should just be everyone should opt out you have to you should have to opt out of being registered to vote not opt in and opt in again and opt in again it's absolutely mm-hmm. ridiculous and tell us a little bit about the work that you've done with Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight yeah well i definitely support um what Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight is doing um you know i i absolutely believe that uh you know american citizens should be um at liberty to uh, exercise their constitutional right to vote. It is the 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 basic undercurrent of our democracy is the ability to vote. And we've had, you know, women um, uh, being arrested, fighting, um, uh, marching, chanting for the right to vote. You know, um, black people in this country marching and chanting and getting arrested for the right to vote, the right to vote like I said, is is the 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 hallmark of our democracy. Other countries envy us because of it. And now because uh because they know that when Democrats vote, Democrats win, uh we've got um we've got massive massive voter suppression. And uh and it's 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 just amazing to me how People who I once thought were statesmen, despite their political affiliation, I now see that they are not the statesmen that I once thought. They are simply power hungry, and um, and we need people in office who will who will without a doubt put others before themselves and place people over power. Mm. I mean, yeah, that's the basic fundamental piece. Is if you if you truly want to serve the people you have to know what the people want and and mm-hmm. 8000 ways we could list their their disenfranchising voters and so that that definitely needs fundamental change yeah we are we are making a big push here in the ninth to um to get out the vote there are people who um like me who look like me who have been told their entire lives like I was it doesn't matter if you vote, it doesn't count. It's not going to matter. And and that disenfranchises them there because it puts them in the mindset that, well, if it's not going to matter, why do it? And so we have a major push here to to um, to explain why your vote matters, to explain that um, that uh, what the that it's, it's important to be registered, that it's important to go and vote, that there is a process to this and there is a reason for it. Um, and, uh, you know, so all of those things that you may be complaining about, you can actually do something about it simply by voting. 
simply by getting others to go with you to vote. Um, and if, if you don't, it, it'll never happen. Mm. Yeah, 100 percent true. Um, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about um, migrant workers in your state, pathway for DACA and citizenship and your, your immigration policy, what, what you would bring to the House of Representatives on behalf of, of the Ninth District with regards to immigration reform. Yes. Well, I think that uh, I believe that that the U.S. immigration policy should be uh, humane. Uh, it should be professional and it should be functional. Um, right now, our immigration system uh, is not working to full capacity. Uh, we, we must be able to, uh, we must have a better uh, visa tracking system. Um, we definitely need to ensure that our, um, that our uh, A, uh, A1 uh, visas are, are allowed again. Our farmers, there's another reason why they are suffering because they aren't able to to get the amount of workers that they used to to be to help them uh, when it comes time to to reap. And so um, it's we all right, so to my my immigration story, you know, I, I, I came here with my parents and we uh, we were naturalized citizens in 1981. And if it weren't for that, I could possibly be a DACA recipient today at age 46, not really knowing the country of my birth, only knowing and loving the country of my residence, the country that I grew up in, the country that I served. And, and so I can understand the fear that, uh, that those people who are in that situation uh, must be feeling right now. The fear of being sent to a country that they barely or don't know at all. Mm, yeah. And, and the fear of participating in, in this country and the, you know, it's, yeah. it, it, it has to be paralyzing. I can't, I, I, I'm, I'm unable to imagine it. Um, and so we, it has to be addressed. You're so right on that. And I mean, and, and think about, you know, how many jobs that would create um, if beefing up the immigration system, right? Just to have people working right. on these visas, how many jobs that would create, which in turn generates tax revenue, which in turn mm -hmm. benefits everyone. So uh, yes. I, I, I appreciate um all that you are, you know, all that you want to bring to to the House of Representatives. And I thank you for talking to me today. Before I let you go, I want uh, my listeners to know how they can help, how they can contribute to your campaign, how they can volunteer by phone banking, text banking, writing postcards. Where can they go to learn about that? Absolutely. Well, to learn about me and the campaign, you can go to DevinPandyForCongress.com. That's the, the word for DevinPandyForCongress.com. If you would like to volunteer, you can uh, uh, send an email uh, to email at DevinPandyForCongress.com. And if you would like to um, to uh, to contribute to the campaign, um, then you can go also to the website DevinPandyForCongress.com, and uh, you can actually volunteer and contribute from the website. And uh, and those are the two things that we that we definitely need at this point. We are 39 days out 
from the election. And my message um, is a strong one. I am fighting for health care. I am fighting for a um, for improved uh, school systems. I am fighting for um, uh, keeping everyone safe and fighting for our farmers, fighting for for all of you who, who are interested, who who are affected by those kitchen table topics, who need to uh, to to feed your family, who want to make more than seventy seven twenty five an hour, um, who want to have a good paying job. I'm fighting for you. Um, and but but my message, as good as I feel that it is, means nothing if no one hears it. And so we need the resources to be able to get that message out. So these are tough times, especially with COVID. Um, so I, I know that, uh, I know that it may be, may not be easy, um, but give what you can, um, all the way from a dollar to the max of $2,800, whatever you can give will help. And we would definitely appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. That's so it's Devin Pandy for Congress, D-E-V-I-N-P-A-N as in Nancy D-Y, the word F-O-R and Congress.com. And that's where you can learn and donate and contribute and volunteer. Um, Army veteran and uh, candidate for Democratic candidate for Georgia's 9th District running against Andrew Clyde, Republican Doug Collins' old seat. Come on, let's let's show him. Let's show him what for everybody. Thank you so much, Devin, for joining me today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. All right, everybody, stick around. We'll be right back with the interview. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. Today's episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by PayPal. These are weird times we're living in. So many challenges we're facing. Things may have changed around us, but our inner drive to be there for the people we care about and the organizations we care about, I think, runs deeper than ever. And it's crucial to stay involved, support our loved ones, our friends, our families, and orgs that support us. And when we come together as a community, we empower ourselves to make meaningful change. And we're finding new ways to connect and continue supporting one another. We've started socially distancing when we spend time with friends and explore local cuisine, for example. We're doing more to support and advocate for underrepresented communities now more than ever. So what we need more now is an easy way to pay and support each other from afar. And for me, the solution's easy. It's PayPal. With a PayPal app, sending and receiving money is fast, easy, and secure. So stay connected with people you love and quickly and send secured money to friends and family just about anywhere in the world, actually. Now, you can start a money pool to split the bill, go in on a gift, or fundraise for a good cause. With PayPal, you can support the places and causes you care about the most. Recently, I donated to ActBlue, and I was able to send financial support to friends of mine in real need. And with PayPal, I can instantly donate to local nonprofits or support a cause from across the country. With PayPal, you can even make touch-free QR code payments at your favorite local restaurant or farmer's market. PayPal is making it easy to pay safely, quickly, and easily. So download the PayPal app today. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Joining me today for the interview is healthcare advocate, award-winning progressive digital new media and communication strategist, and stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer survivor, lucky enough to be blocked by Donald Trump on Twitter, Laura Packard. Laura, welcome to The Daily Beans. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Um, first of all, uh, just I can't imagine the amount of, of courage and guts and, you know, Wonder Woman-ness it took to defeat um, Hodgkin's lymphoma. So, so like digital hugs to you all day for that. But 
I wanted to talk to you about what the Affordable Care Act means to you and also uh, what the looming conservative court could mean for all Americans and health care, especially people with pre-existing conditions. So can you talk a little bit about the Affordable Care Act? Sure. Uh, well, the Affordable Care Act saved my life. Um, I'm self-employed and my insurance before the ACA was a junk policy. And if I still had that policy today, I would be bankrupt or dead. Uh, the uh, it, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to save my life, and I wouldn't have been able to afford the treatment that I needed without the Affordable Care Act. Uh, my policy is through the uh, ACA exchanges because, like I, I mentioned before, I'm self-employed. But the effects of the Affordable Care Act uh, reach out to everyone because even if you have insurance through your employer, uh, the fact that there are no longer annual or lifetime limits uh, and that insurance has to be has to cover essential um, health benefits and uh, preventive services, none of that was guaranteed before the ACA. And so not only does the Affordable Care Act affect the 135 million Americans with pre-existing conditions, many of us are uninsurable without it, but it affects everybody. Um, however you get your insurance, the ACA benefits have been there behind the scenes helping you. Yeah, 100%. And right now, you know, we're in the middle of an economic tailspin and a, and a global pandemic. We have 40 million people out of work and a lot of people's insurance is connected to their job, which is weird, but that's a whole other show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's uh, and not to mention the fact that COVID itself could create so many pre-existing conditions. And so it's so important that we we understand the importance and the impact of the ACA. Exactly. Uh, and uh, uh, reporters have already come out, have done the digging that it would be considered a pre-existing condition. And if we go back to the time where insurance companies can pick and choose who they want to cover, they're not going to want to cover anybody with COVID because we don't even know what it looks like months or years from now, what kind of care people are going to need going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now we're facing, dis- despite what Republicans said in 20, you know, at the end of Obama's term when they didn't want to appoint a Supreme Court justice or nominate a Supreme Court justice in the same year as an election. Uh, they're going back on their word and they're doing it now, even though and people are like, well, you know, we're only 38 days before the election. We're actually voting now. We're in the election. We are mm-hmm. voting now. And yet they're they're rescinding their word that that just that hypocrisy is ingrained in them so deeply. Can can we talk a little bit? Uh, and, and I am afraid that this is going to go through this nomination of Amy uh, Coney Barrett is going mm-hmm. to go through. And she has written some scathing uh, hate opinions about the Affordable Care Act and, and is certainly going to, if she gets on the court in time for the arguments November 10th, gut it, repeal it, dismantle it totally. What will that look like for most Americans? Well, um, living here in Colorado, my Senator Cory Gardner is one of those that said one thing a few years ago and is doing something else right now, because now if Trump asks him to jump, Cory Gardner says, how high? Uh, so, uh, and then he runs TV commercials claiming to protect people with pre-existing conditions. Anyways, uh, this this is serious, this fight, because this uh, radical right-wing judge Amy Coney Barrett uh, has criticized uh, the Affordable Care Act rulings in the past. 
And President Trump promised to nominate judges that would strike down Obamacare, and now he's really doing it. And senators like my own Cory Gartner are just standing by letting it happen. Uh, they are more than happy to promise the world in their TV ads, but when it comes right down to it, they would rather give tax cuts to rich people than to save our lives. Mm. Which doesn't help the <laughs> the healthcare situation in the country uh, it, at all. It, it's detrimental to it as well. This massive shift of wealth that we've seen occur in the last four years puts mm-hmm. everyone at a healthcare disadvantage because they're in court arguing uh, right now to gut the ACA and uh, and they're transferring wealth from lower middle working class Americans. And we know that this just disproportionately impacts uh, people of color and, uh, you know, different communities and also people with pre-existing conditions, for example. And so it's mm-hmm. just this snowball of mounting bullshit and and. What are some of the things that we can do? What are the answers here? I mean, I know, you know, we've talked about on the show a lot about pushing Biden. And Mm -hmm. if we flip the Senate and we need to get rid of the filibuster and we need to double the federal bench and add seats to the Supreme Court, uh, because, you know, like I said, it looks like this nomination is going to go through. What else can we be doing other than letting Americans understand and and raising awareness of of the impact that this nomination will have on on health care and and many other issues for Americans. Mm -hmm. Well, um, in terms of getting a better health care next year, uh, the time to act is now in pushing Biden, in pushing uh, Senate candidates to, uh, to make promises to us, to promise that they will vote to lower the cost of prescription drugs instead of siding with big pharma, uh, that they will fight the insurance companies and fight for a robust public option uh, as competition. Uh, I spoke at the Democratic National Convention uh, with Joe Biden, and he promised to me that he would fight for a public option. So I am going to hold them to it. So that's for 2021. But first, we have to get to 2021. And even though it's not looking good on the Supreme Court fight, we have to keep fighting. We can't just roll over. So we have to keep contacting our senators until they actually make their votes. Uh, So Cory Gardner needs to hear from us every day uh, until he does what he does. And then we need to make sure that everybody in Colorado hears about what he did so that they can vote accordingly this November. So uh, we need to uh, keep fighting in every single one of these offices and make sure the people responsible for this are kicked out of office. Yes. And then after the election, uh, we need to push our new elected House members and senators and hopefully newly elected president to do the, to expand the courts, um, because without that, uh, the the Affordable Care Act could be dead in its tracks and is obviously as early as the lame duck session. But even going forward, if we if we can get rid of at least get rid of the filibuster, we can mm-hmm. we can actually codify the Affordable Care Act. Um, and make laws. And so I think it's really important that we we have to flip the Senate. We have to keep the House. Absolutely. Because November 10th, the week after the election, the Supreme Court meets and uh, uh, begins arguments on uh, this court case to destroy the entire Affordable Care Act. 
There probably won't be a ruling until next year sometime. Uh, so that does leave time for Congress to act and for the president to sign something. Uh, but uh, we we have to get going. And if we don't flip the Senate and change out the White House, uh, they will surely succeed. Mm-hmm. And whatever uh, reasons that uh, this conservative court, looming conservative court, uh, uses to determine that the Affordable Care Act is somehow unconstitutional, even though it's already decided it wasn't, whatever reasons they come up with, it can be fixed or amended in the law, and the law can be reissued and signed, and then it would have to face brand new litigation. Right. Uh, and just this, this is all about the money. I mean, sure, on general principle, they don't believe that that healthcare is a human right. But the, the way that the Affordable Care Act is structured is that uh, it's paid for in part by uh, uh, taxes on the wealthy. And so if you remove the Affordable Care Act, you give rich people a great big tax cut. So that's why they're doing this. They're they're doing this because they don't believe that health we deserve health care. And also they want to give more money to their rich donors. Yeah. And and speaking of those rich donors, I mean, how how many millions go into the health care lobby to keep it private, to keep it privatized, to keep to keep health care for profit, which is just such a terrible it's just it's it makes no sense um, to do that because then you incentivize to keeping people sick and dying. Yeah. I mean, every other country has figured out a better system than ours. And <laughs> still, here we are. Yes. Yeah. We claim to be the leaders in everything. You know, we're number one in a contest. No one else entered. Um, <laughs> so it's. It's sort of discouraging. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add, though? Anything else that we could or should be doing, um, not just between, well, between now and the election and then, of course, afterwards? Uh, just make sure to talk about this election with your friends and family and what this means, uh, because everyone's health care is at stake uh, and most people are not even aware of that yet. Awesome. Well, tell everyone where they can find you and follow you and support you and listen to you because uh, your Twitter feed's incredible. And I really, really have enjoyed speaking with you today. And I, I think that we all kind of need to support one another to get the word out. So how can how can people find you? Thanks. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at L Packard. And that's the Twitter feed that's too hot for Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> you were blocked by so many people that I wish I was blocked by. I have to tell you that. <laughs> Chuck Woolery is not a fan either. <laughs> he blocked me. I did get him. I did get him. <laughs> but I need I need Sebastian Gorka. I've been working on him for a while. He won't block me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. So everybody follow L Packard on Twitter. And uh, so the everyone healthcare advocate and gosh, stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer survivor, Laura Packard. Thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you. Bye. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. It's AG. I'm so proud to have the support of our latest sponsor, The New Yorker. I've been a fan of The New Yorker for so long. As a kid, I remember picking up my first copy and being drawn in by the art and the design and the colors and the cartoons especially. The New Yorker has always been the best of the best in print and online. The New Yorker stands apart for its commitment to truth and accuracy, quality writing, and compelling reporting and storytelling. 
The New Yorker is considered by many to be one of the most influential publications in the world. The New Yorker's weekly print issues and daily online articles cover a wide range of topics with something for everyone. Politics, news, international affairs, climate change, the environment, pop culture is a big one for me, the arts, fiction, food, humor, and of course, the cartoons. The New Yorker has been the daily digital destination for news and cultural coverage, publishing 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day. In addition to that, you can use their apps, read from the online archive, dating all the way back to 1925. You can solve the crossword puzzles and more. In both print and online digital issues, The New Yorker has content from the best writers in America today. A couple of my favorite contributing writers include the television critic Emily Nussbaum, who won the Pulitzer in 2016, and Doreen St. Felix, who covers highs and lows of today's culture and won the Ellie Award for columns and commentary in 2019. A 12-week subscription is just $6 and includes home delivery of the print edition each week, which I love, and unlimited access to The New Yorker online. Uh, This is a 50% discount for our listeners. And for a limited time, you can get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6. That Again, that's 50% off. Plus, listeners of our show will receive an exclusive tote bag for free. So go to newyorker.com slash dailybeans. That's N-E-W-Y-O-R-K-E-R dot com slash dailybeans to get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6 and a free tote bag. That's newyorker.com slash dailybeans. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll blow Everybody, thank you so much for sending in your good news stories, whether they're personal or political. And we have some confessions today, and you can send us corrections. We'll read them here as well. Just let us know if you want to be anonymous. You can throw your pronouns in there, too. We'll take care of that. Uh, Or you can put your name if you want, if you want to be identified. No problem at all. You just submit any of these things by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking contact. And then there'll be a drop-down menu of all the different things you can submit. Uh, Our first... Submission is a confession from Anonymous, no pronouns given. The combination of stress, insomnia, and general quarantine fatigue has me doing some late-night internet shopping. But instead of perusing Amazon for something I definitely don't need to buy for myself, I started thinking of potential gifts for my roommate's upcoming birthday. To be honest, since this is a confession after all, she's been driving me crazy. The last thing I want to do is buy her a gift. So instead of looking for a real gift... I decided to donate to 13 separate campaigns for the Senate. So she'll get campaign merch, and I get to feel good about the money I spent. (laughs) (laughs) Win-win. So that's the confession. Your roommate drives you nuts. You went looking for a gift. You got her 13 donations to Senate campaigns, and she can have some merch. I like it. I hope she's a Democrat. (laughs) Thank you for that confession. Next up is a good news submission. This one comes from Kelly. No pronouns given. I love your show. I am Canadian, but have a brother in Chicago. I love Chicago so much, Kelly. I listen faithfully every day. I thank you for keeping me in the loop with swears. You're fucking welcome. I messaged my sister-in-law on Friday to make sure her and her elderly father requested an absentee ballot and was happy to hear they have both already put their vote in. My brother would love to vote, but he isn't a citizen yet after 10 years of living there. Still having to renew green cards constantly. Trump has made the process so much more difficult. Thank you again. Kelly, you're welcome. I've got some good friends uh, who have to go through that process. It takes decades to get citizenship. It's bananas. Ah, So many jobs, low-hanging fruit jobs that could be created to, to expedite citizenship. 
I mean, that's what that's what the main complaint is, right, from xenophobes. Let me make them go through the process. Great. Pay a fee. Sign up online. You should be able to just... I don't understand why it takes so long. Um, anyway, hopefully we'll fix that if we all get out and vote. Uh, next up, good news from Celeste. Pronouns she and her. Dear lovely, lovely Daily Beans ladies... The pandemic has been rough. My gig work here in Las Vegas with conventions and large parties pretty much dried up in March and has not come back for obvious reasons. As savings dwindled, with both my husband and I no longer getting the gigs we had come to rely on, I tried desperately to budget away my growing anxiety. However, last month, unexpectedly, a friend let me know she'd been leaving her position and I'd be a good fit to take her place in a local PR firm. Knowing that nowadays an employer will scroll through social media before they hire you, I wondered if my sometimes strongly worded political views might be held against me. Sure enough, during our phone interview, my potential new boss brought up that I'd made uh, a post I'd made against Corona Katie, a.k.a. Katie Williams, the right-wing gun nut and former beauty pageant queen, she got stripped of her crown, who is running for the Clark County School District Board of Trustees, District B. This young lady is a cuckoo bananas dedicated Trumper and her tweets rival the orange one when it comes to conspiracies, spelling errors, and COVID denial. Just today she tweeted again that you shouldn't bother wearing masks just to make other people feel better. Well, as it happens, my potential new boss did not bring up my F-bomb-laden anti-Corona Katie post-scold to me. On the contrary, he said he agreed with every word and was backing her opposition. The sensible and qualified Jeff Prophet, a local union leader and husband of a special ed teacher. Down-ballot races are so important, and the school board, which is supposed to be nonpartisan, can get overlooked and turn into a gateway for terrible extremist candidates. Clark County Schools needs all the help we can get navigating this pandemic, and electing a super right-wing COVID denier would certainly seriously harm so many students and teachers. In fact, if you mention Jeff Prophet's name and tell your Southern Nevada listeners to vote for him and keep hashtag COVIDKatie far, far away from the school board, I would seriously earn major brownie points with my new boss. Yes, he's my new boss. I got the job, and I knew this little company would be awesome as soon as they asked for a headshot of my dog for the About Us part of their website. Uh, I would like to work at this firm, Celeste. So uh, let your boss know. Um, You know, hey, I can do PR. This is amazing, though. Definitely. Vote no on COVID Katie. Vote yes on Jeff Prophet. Southern Nevada listeners, Clark County Schools, District B, Board of Trustees. Make it happen. Teamwork makes the dream work. Next up from Stuart. You know what, Stuart? I like you. Uh, pronouns he and him. Yo, listen up. Here's a story about a little guy who had a <laughs> who had blue by Eiffel 65 as his ringtone for about six months. <laughs> I originally said it as a joke and kind of forgot about it. But since I listened to all my podcasts on Bluetooth, whenever I got a phone call, the podcast would stop and I would suddenly hear the chorus of blue start playing. And now every time Flip It Blue segment comes on, I start looking for my phone before remembering it's part of the podcast. Dabi dabi di dai. Thank you. I was thinking of putting some other blue songs in there, like maybe some Patsy Cline um or blue bayou or blue christmas or you know because we will have a blue christmas if we do this right 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 am i right or am i right or am i right 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 ned needle nose ned ned the head there's your movie reference for the day um anyway i yeah yeah yo listen up here's the story about a little guy who had blue by eiffel 65 as his ringtone you're crazy that song is so annoying (laughs) i (laughs) 
I'm kind of, we'll, maybe we'll get, hey, go to dailybeanspod.com, click contact, send us ideas for the theme song for the Flip It Blue segment. Let us know if you're tired of Eiffel 65. I kind of did that to be annoying. I apologize. Next up, good news from Gail. Some older poll workers dropped out because of COVID-19, but millennials are stepping up to replace them. Yay. Awesome. Gail, I just got uh, accepted to be a technical inspector, I think is what it's called. Technician, inspector, technician, technic, tech, something. I'll have to look at the form again, but I got accepted to be a poll worker and I'm very excited. I haven't figured out for those four days what I'm going to do about the show. Uh, but I, I'm sure you will all understand. I'll put something up, though. Don't worry. Something will happen. So that is great news, Gail. Um, millennials are stepping up. Good job. And I bet some Gen Z folks are, too. And Xers as well. Go all the generations. Good news. Next up from Anonymous, pronoun she and her. Instead of crying and being sad about the fact that I didn't get a high school graduation... There was one, but I didn't feel comfortable going because no one wore masks and it was not socially distanced. I decided to do some good deeds to make me feel fulfilled. I was thinking about members of my Kingdom Hall, uh, Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. We stopped meeting in March and now do Zoom meetings and decided to make each member of my Kingdom Hall, there were about 150 of us, and my friends, homemade French macaroons. I delivered them to each of their houses. After this, I, I felt so good. I was already to start college, and then I got an email saying I was given a recognition scholarship, which I applied for my junior year, and now I'm saving $2,000 each semester in my online school. That is so great. Uh, I feel so fulfilled and good that I was following the law and being safe, making others smile, especially because most of my peers were still having parties. I roll. I feel like God rewarded me with that for that scholarship. P.S. If Amy Carrera is listening, I just wanted to say I am the biggest fan of you. And then there's a photo and happy graduation and congratulations. This is so incredible. Um, it's it, it it is so good to do good deeds for it. It feels so good. Uh, it reminds me of the end the end of uh, of the movie Scrooged with Bill Murray. You're gonna want it. You're gonna want to feel that, and you're gonna do it. And you're gonna get greedy for it, and then you're gonna want to give people stuff all the time. And that's the miracle. That's you can make. You can have the miracle. I I have the. It's so great. Watch Scrooged if you haven't watched Scrooged. There's another movie reference. I put two in here today. Maybe even three. Next up, fan fiction Karen and Eugene, pronouns she, her. Quick confession, I have another episode of AG and Tits McGee, Justice Porn, in my head, but I have yet to download it onto paper. Stay tuned. Oh, we are looking forward to it. Next up, a confession from Anonymous. My confession is gnarly. All right, <clears throat> prepared. Like so many, I have become lazy while stuck working from home. I've become so lazy, I haven't done laundry or changed the pair of leggings I've worn in months. I've changed the tops I wear because I go out for coffee via drive through in my car every day. The baristas can only see me from my torso up, so I try not to offend them by wearing the same stinky top. My method, I have about four tops I wear in rotation. When I take one off, I let it freshen on the floor until it's it's turned to be worn again. All of the above is simply to set the stage for my real confession. I haven't cut my big toenails in seven months. I've cut my other toenails about three times. My big toenails are now long and hard, and I can't even figure out how to cut them. Do I need a saw, hedge cutters, a butcher knife? My big toenails are 100% gnarly now, and I'm stuck. Do I drop dead from embarrassment? If I went for a pedicure to get these babies fixed, do you have suggestions for hand tools I could use? Thankfully, I live alone with a feisty, affectionate cat who does not criticize my lack of pandemic hygiene. He uses my big toenails to mark me with the side of his mouth. I love your show, and I've listened to you since the first days of Muller, she wrote. Thank you for all you do. You keep me laughing in a time that otherwise would be filled with tears and rage. Well, gnarly toes. Uh, I just use toenail clippers. 
Uh, grab them off the interwebs or any CVS pharmacy if you're out getting your coffee. That's what I would use. Or you could just file them. But if they're super long, I don't know how long that would take. <laughs> but you can get emery boards at CVS for like 79 cents. Um, let's see. We got two more here. We got a good news story from Panda Ann, also known as Bob T. Pronouns she and her. Good news. Against all odds, our beloved Mei Zhang, panda mom extraordinaire, had another cub who is now five weeks old as of Friday, September 25th. It has been five years since her last cub, and this was pretty much her last chance, and she is a panda of a certain age. Uh, <laughs> me and that panda understand each other. We found out after she gave birth that there was a 1% chance um, that that the uh, artificial insemination would be successful, given her age and the fact that the sperm had been frozen for five years. Whoa. In a time when hope and joy are in short supply, this little bundle of fluff is lifting the spirits and hope of panda fans around the world. I know the fate of one smaller bear might seem insignificant in the face of the downfall of democracy, but for me it feels like a sign that the world is going to right itself. Thanks for all you do here. I urge anyone feeling the weight of upholding democracy to take a quick break over at the Smithsonian National Zoo Panda Cam to lift your spirits. I made many trips to San Diego, known as Pan Diego, to the Pandarati, to visit our beloved Mr. Wu and his mom, Bai Yun, and dad, Gao Gao. Alas, they have moved to China. And until Donnie is gone, Dotard Donnie is gone, we probably won't get more pandas at San Diego Zoo. When I'm not watching actual pandas on cams, I draw snarky pol- political comics about pandas at yourbrainonpandas.com. That's so amazing. I like red pandas, but... Yeah, being a resident of San Diego, I'm very familiar with all of our, our our pandas, and we were very sad when they when they went home. Um, but the incredible conservation work there and with WWF. So, thank you very much for that. Uh, and I didn't know there was a Pandarati, and I didn't know we were referred to as Pan Diego. That's amazing. Uh, finally. Good news from Katie, pronouns she and her. I recently found out that a good friend of mine from college has decided to run for state rep in Washington State. He is one of the most conscientious, well-informed, passionate people I know, whose mere presence inspires you to be the best person you can be. The district he's running for is historically red and would be a great candidate for the Flip It Blue segment, and I couldn't be more proud of him as he went from write-in candidate to winning the Democratic primary. His name is Devin Kuh. He's running for uh, District 14 in Washington State. Check him out at electka, that's K-U-H, or Ku, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, um, electkuh.com, and hooray for getting the younger generation in office. By the time you hear this, Katie, we will have reached out to Devin. Thank you to everyone who has sent Flip It Blue segment suggestions. You're really coming through. You can send your Flip It Blue segment uh, suggestions to Kanai, K-A-N-A-I, at MullerSheWrote.com. I know it's not the Daily Beans, but it's at MullerSheWrote.com. And uh, let us know who you would like to hear on the Flip It Blue segment. I would really appreciate it. Um, that is the good news and confessions for the week. We didn't have any corrections, uh, but please feel free to submit those too, and you can do it all at thedailybeanspod.com. Everybody, uh, <laughs> I will get to those headlines we missed over the weekend because of that huge New York Times story, and uh, I'm looking forward to the the remaining stories that come out over the coming weeks uh, that I assume are just going to get more and more bombshell as, as the weeks go on. Uh, it's going to be really, really fun to see... Um, Trump at the debate in two days after the release of this information. <laughs> so, haha. If he goes, right? 
He's been sort of trying to lay down groundwork to not even have to show up. I won't debate unless he takes a drug test or whatever the fuck he's talking about. I don't know. He's. I'm so tired. I'm just so tired of him, you guys, and girls and, and non-binary people, everyone. I'm just so tired of him. I'm so tired. Anyway, thank you for listening, and uh, I will keep this up. I will not let you down, um, and if you need to take a break, let us know. My DMs are open on Twitter, at Allison Gill, and at Wrote and at Daily Beans Pod, if you need anybody to talk to. Uh, so until tomorrow, everyone, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of your mental health, and take care of the planet. I've been AG, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com.